the whole period, becoming first lady, getting fired, all of these things all happened in about a six week period. So it was tumultuous and hard, but it was actually a gift because I could throw myself into being first lady of California and it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than 9 to 5. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. It is Carly. Today, our guest is Maria Shriver. She is a Peabody and Emmy award-winning journalist who has worked on programs like Dateline NBC and NBC Nightly News. She is also the founder of the Women's Alzheimer's Movement, which studies the impact of Alzheimer's on women and communities of color. Maria currently serves as a special correspondent for NBC News, and she continues her work with Alzheimer's by bringing brain-healthy food to the world through her new company, Mosh. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to to have you here. I've been a longtime fan and most looking forward to doing this lightning round with you. Are you ready? This is how we start all conversations. Okay. It's quick, rapid, rapid fire. fire. Okay. I don't know what it is, but go ahead. Okay. What is the first job you ever got paid for? First job I ever got paid for probably shucking oysters in Georgetown in a bar. Were you good at it? Yeah, I was very good at it. Yeah. I didn't want to make it a career, but I was good at it. (laughs) You never know. It's good to have a fallback. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Do you have, other than checking oysters, any secret hobby or skill? Do I have a secret hobby? Uh, Well, I have a lot of things that I love doing. I don't know if they're a skill. I love to bake. I love to make birthday cakes. I love to do flowers. I love to do things around my home. I'm very home uh, oriented. If you get to bake a cake from a box, are we going like Funfetti or are we going like chocolate? We're going Funfetti. We're going vanilla. We're going Funfetti. We're going anything fun. So one thing about your new company, Mosh, is that you're working on this with your son, right? Uh Exactly. Yeah. What is one thing that you have learned from working with your son on this? How good he is at math, how good he is at business. I kind of knew that, but I'm really kind of blown away by his understanding of D2C business, of his understanding of business in general, and how quick he moves in the meetings in his mind. Like I'm trying to cap I'm like, what was that an acronym for? And he's just moved on to 10 other things. That's how you know you have yeah. a good business partner. That's right. I'm like, woo. Okay. Yeah. All right. Favorite mosh flavor? Peanut butter. I actually started with peanut butter. I don't really normally like chocolate, but I've kind of, you know, secretly moved into this chocolate one being my favorite of the moment, which I'm shocked by. All right. So you obviously are from a very well-known family. Who is the relative, can't be an immediate family member, which of your extended Shriver, Kennedy, Schwarzenegger family do you talk to the most? Can't be your children. Can't be my children. I talk to my two cousins, Caroline and Sydney, the most. After my kids, after my brothers, after my sister-in-laws, those two girls who uh, are my surrogate sisters, I talk to the most. That's very sweet. Do they have a nickname for you? Uh, Monkey Brain. 
Okay. Is there a story there? <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm bouncing. I'm always coming up with ideas or things to do or ideas, just all kinds of stuff like that. So my cousin Sydney said, Oh, here comes monkey brain. She's going to give us 10 things we have to do. So. <laughs> so in your beginning, or I would say like the heyday of your NBC mm-hmm. time, you did a lot of major interviews. Which one stands out the most? I don't, people ask me that all the time. I don't. No, I don't want to ask you that. Okay, then don't. I don't I'm going to take it back. Because it's really hard. It's like a kid, you know, which is your no, favorite I'm gonna, I'm kid. No, I'm going to take it back. Okay, take it back. In the heyday of your NBC career. Which I feel like I'm still in my heyday, by the way. I'm, I'm going like, to redo uh, the whole thing now. Okay. <laughs> Maria. <laughs> in the early years of at NBC. I had a life before <laughs> NBC. You have interviewed many well-known, famous people, newsmakers, mm-hmm. et cetera. Who have you not interviewed that you would still like to interview? The Pope. I'd really like to interview the Pope. I'd like like to to go kind of hang out with the Pope for a while. I'd like to soak in uh, the Pope's day. I'd like to understand his thinking. Um, I want to talk to him about the role of women in the church. I'm really interested in talking to him about how to keep expanding uh, the vision of the church, the heart of the church, and the openness of the church. I really hope you get that interview because I have a lot of the same questions. Um, Okay, last lightning round question. Go to karaoke song. I'll probably stop in the name of love. Anything by the Supremes. That's a good one. Wait, actually, I have one more. I have one more lightning round question. You are a new grandmother. What do your grandchildren call you or what will they call you? Mama J. (laughs) My granddaughter, Lila, sometimes calls me mum, M-U-M. I don't know where she came up with oh, that. Oh, very British. Yeah, it's very British, but she's always like, mom, mom. So I kind of go with that. And then she now has moved into Mama G and I don't know where she'll go. You know, it changes all the time, but that's kind of where it we are at the moment <laughs> for today. All right. Well, thank you for being a good sport for lightning okay. round. So I want to move into <laughs> kind of the, the meat of our, our conversation. And, you know, this is a career podcast and we usually start by kind of going back to how people grew up. But, you know, doing this with you is a little bit different. A lot of our listeners know your family and and feel like they know them very well, whether or not that's true or not. Your mother, Eunice Shriver, was JFK and RFK's sister. Your father, Sergeant Shriver, was also highly involved in politics. You obviously were, were married into politics and grew up in it. What, as you were growing up and you thought and, and had aspirations for a career, like how did you think about what success could or or would look like for you? Like, how did you frame what success could be? Well, um, I didn't, I guess, think about success. I thought about what moved me. And I'm just going to correct you a little bit on that introduction of my mother, uh, because she worked really hard to be more than someone's sister. She worked really hard. You know, I really appreciate you saying that. I have studied your family for many years and specifically actually your mother. So your mother is such an incredible legacy. And um, why don't you give her the proper intro? Yeah. So my mother uh, created the Special Olympics. She founded the Special Olympics. She had a sister who was intellectually disabled, Rosemary. And really her life's passion came out of trying to help mothers like her mother have a place to take their children like Rosemary, because there were no summer camps that were open or available to people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, Equal education wasn't available to people like Rosemary. So she went about starting the Special Olympics so the mothers would have a place to bring their children. And then it grew into this incredibly global 
organization that brings health care to people with intellectual disabilities. She fought for equal education, equal access, individual education plans. And she always told me that this is a program built by volunteers. It's for families and it's meant to change the world for families. So she worked with her brothers to change law, to change legislation. Then she worked on it uh, till the day she died. My dad also worked with her. He started the Peace Corps. He started the War on Poverty. Both of their lives were built really kind of helping people. So I grew up with people that were incredibly successful, but they were successful by trying to change the world by going into politics or what we now view as nonprofit work or social change work. And they never talked about, um, you know, like, oh, what are you going to do with your career? They just always said, how do you see yourself being a part of making the world better? So I, I looked for what moved me and what moved me was storytelling. And I was always interested in people's trajectory of their lives and then asking them questions about their lives and then telling that story. And that turned out to be journalism. So I always thought about where can I tell the best stories? What platform can I tell them on? I wanted to inform people, but I also wanted to inspire them. That was really my politics, so to speak. So I think that's the way I kind of thought about my life, not my career. That's kind of a long-winded answer, but I wanted to give my mother her, no, her uh, due. I really, really appreciate you you kind of jumping in there because your mother in particular sort of paved the way of really setting the standard of what it means to be an active citizen. But I'm somebody who also started my career like wanting to go into journalism and fell in love with storytelling at a young age too. Mm -hmm. But I was a really shy kid. Like I really liked being behind the camera. Like even now me doing a podcast and like going in front of my brand, it takes like me getting out of my comfort zone. What were you like as a kid? Like, were you the one behind the camera? Were you like the ham? Like, what, what was your personality? From what everybody tells me, always very inquisitive, always very curious, always interested in other people. But I think I, I grew up in a family of all boys. You know, my mother was a big believer. She also grew up in a family where there was a lot of male energy and she was very uh, adamant that I'd be able to play tackle football with my brothers, hit the hard ball with my brothers, go to sports things with my brothers, because she would always say to me, you know, it's a man's world out there and you have to know how to compete, how to be tough, how not to take things personally and how to get out there and keep getting out there. So I think I was a, a probably a tomboy. I mean, I look back at pictures and most of my pictures up until seven or eight, I'm running around without a shirt on. So probably I thought I was a boy, <laughs> but, um, but I think I was just always curious and athletic. And kind of reading about you, one of the things that I read was advice you were given from a mentor in journalism, which was to start small, right. go to the small market, not the big market. Yeah. That's obviously very specific to like, you know, broadcast journalism mm -hmm. at the time. But I think that there is something right now about when people enter the workforce, if they're lucky enough to have a choice of, do you go to the startup? Do you go small? Or do you try to get the big corporate job at like the big HQ? And I'm really curious as you kind of reflect back on like that advice did work for you. How would you think about it today? And if somebody came to you for advice, like, do I go small or do I go big? How you would, how you sort of just think through that? I would go to a place where you get the most 
opportunity and uh, where you get your hands dirty, where you get a chance to do the most things. So I went to Philadelphia and Baltimore, uh, and I was given the opportunity to work the assignment desk, to log people's tapes, to write things, to be a sound woman, to do the lighting, to work in the edit room. Those were things I would never have been given the opportunity to do had I gone to a big New York market. So I think that whenever you're in a smaller organization like Mosh, for example, there's my son, myself, and two other people, right? So everybody's doing everything. I have a media company, Shriver Media. Everybody's doing everything. They're writing, they're cutting, they're producing. And so you you get an opportunity or you're, you're required to be scrappy, to be uh, creative, to be strategic, to jump in and do everything that you can. If you can work for somebody that you admire, or someone who's going to give you opportunities or let you do a lot of different things. I think that's way better myself than going to work for a big prestigious place where you're stuck in the corner doing one thing and you might end up being bored out of your mind. How do you think then, you know, because I think it's really good advice to, to think about like, what are you getting exposed to and who you work for? How can you like be the biggest sponge you yeah. can be to soak up as much as possible all the time? But I'm curious how you sort of marry or, or, or don't marry sort of the advice around be a sponge, soak up as much as you can with seizing new opportunities and how you thought about it for yourself. Like, how did you know when it was time to kind of make the next move to move up the ladder? Well, I got fired. So that was a good, you know, a <laughs> uh, way of making the next opportunity. I, I actually, you know, the first job I was in ended after a year it was kind of an expanded management training program. Then I went to the next job and I was there for two and a half years and I was a sound woman and a producer. Then I left that to go work for my uncle who was running for president. So that seemed to be a logical shift. And when I came out of that, I went to work for people who I had worked for back in Baltimore that were starting a new primetime access show, which was called Evening Magazine. And they hired me as a producer. Then they said I could, in exchange, do some on-camera stuff for my producing. So I used one talent to ski on the other one. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of kept going. I always had my eye on wanting to be a morning news anchor. I stayed in those jobs for a couple of years, and I sent out tapes to get to the network because I knew if I wanted to get a morning news job, I had to get to a network. So I went to CBS, and I stayed there until I got fired. And then when I got fired, I applied to NBC and I've been there on and off for almost 40 years. And I've done many other things kind of in between. I took a leave of absence when I became first lady. And I've also tried to work uh, in the documentary space with other companies so that I keep myself broad. I keep myself open. But I have a great deal of loyalty to the company that I went to at the time, NBC, And I think um, I'm a believer in loyalty to people that you work with and companies that you work with. I know that's maybe not popular today. I mean, I am too. Yeah. (laughs) So I always looked at that as a um, a, a quality that was in me. And Mm -hmm. I just transferred it to the place that I worked. So you just alluded to kind of taking a leave of absence when you became the first lady of California in 2003. NBC asked you to take a leave of absence because they were worried it was going to pose a conflict of interest. Correct. Walk me through like, you know, we just spent the last 10 minutes really talking about 
just an amazing career that you built for yeah. yourself. And like you literally did brick by brick and like did every skill that you could have on the field and, and bringing it back into the studio to sort of have to make a choice. And, you know, I don't know if you, like, I didn't really was... have to make a choice. Yeah. It wasn't a choice, <laughs> but, but to feel that your career had to kind of go on, on pause a little bit, like, or, or transition to something else. Cause you obviously took on greater initiatives as first lady of, of California, but just what that moment was like for you. Well, it was tough. I mean, I think, you know, when I uh, had my first child, I had two anchor jobs. I was anchoring the Sunday today show and I was the anchor of the weekend news. And both of them, one was in New York, one was in Washington, and my family was in LA. So I was going from LA to New York, New York to Washington, back to LA. And I remember going into the president of the news division and saying, you know, can you move one of these to LA for me? Um, and he's like, no. And matter of fact, I can fill both of them by the time you get to the elevator banks. Uh, so I knew very well that, you know, one was a place of business and one was family. And I knew that when I started to have children, my career shifted. So when I became first lady, I thought I could keep my journalism in a kind of diminished capacity. And they felt like, no, it would be problematic for them. And so they made the decision for me. I think the whole period, becoming first lady, getting fired, all of these things all happened in about a six-week period. So it was tumultuous and hard. But it was actually a gift because I could throw myself into being first lady of California. And I feel that's a job I did well. And it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I brought my journalism to that job and built a team and built a women's conference and initiatives that had I not had my journalism experience, I probably wouldn't have been able to do. So I think, you know, that in many times in careers, they ebb and they flow, they shift and they move, right? And you don't stay on a linear path, particularly if you're having children, particularly if you're in a really demanding career. And I've spoken to many women who were on a track for a C-suite and they had one kid, two kid, three, and all of a sudden the C-suite didn't look uh, like it did before you had a kid. The hours required for that to stay in that room, to be in that room, maybe didn't look the same as before you had a child. So I think I traveled nonstop before I had children. All of a sudden, that didn't look like it jived with raising four kids with a husband who was off doing the same. So I was aware that something had to shift. And I felt like I kept shifting my career with each kid. And happily so, by the way, I would say those were all choices. Well, you raised like a, a really Im important point, which, you know, we spent a lot of time on the show with a lot of other guests talking about how career for so many of us is like such a central part to our identity. Mm -hmm. And then there's various things that either expand that identity, like have, expanding a family or a career change that makes you or family change that makes you think about like, well, what was my identity to begin with? And I'm curious for those that are listening that have had to, for a variety of reasons, maybe step away from their job, maybe a childcare issue, maybe something from the pandemic, any reason, what is your advice around how to think about approaching their career when they can take something back on? Well, I think once again, it's the same as I think when you're whatever age you are is what moves you, what can you do? What does your life make room for. I think these are all very personal decisions. Some people have no choice but to take the first thing that's offered to them because they have bills to pay and mouths to feed. So I think, you know, we certainly saw that with women with the pandemic. Once they lost childcare, they had to give up their job or things changed dramatically in their home. So many people find themselves sandwiched between children and elderly parents. So I think people 
have to find jobs that work for their life, that pay their bills, but also allow them to maybe caretake or parent or provide in the manner which they can. So I think it's a very individual decision. It's a family decision. And I think people make decisions at different points of their life from where they are. And I think, you know, one of the things my mother said to me was that life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And so think about the totality of your life. Here I am at my age and I have in freedom that I never have had in my entire life to think about what do I want to do? How do I want to spend my day? Because I'm on the other side of raising four children, of taking care of parents, of being married and spending a lot of time working with someone on their career. Those things are really behind me. So I'm now able to build a media company, launch a news magazine, run a nonprofit, run a new business with my son. And I now find myself, wow, I feel like, huh, like light. And I'm like, what is that? And that's like not having four children all really close together. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but um, I'm now on the other side of it. And that's a very different feeling. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about your dad and kind of your work with Alzheimer's. Your dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2003. And ever since you have continued fighting for increasing research into the disease, you started the women's Alzheimer's movement and recently opened the Alzheimer's prevention center for women at the Cleveland clinic. First of all, Alzheimer's is something that's touched my own family. So um, thank you for, for this work. And um, I was especially excited to talk to you because of this. I'm really curious why you chose to focus the research on women. Women are two-thirds of those who get Alzheimer's and nobody was focused on that. And that fact wasn't even a part of the narrative. And I'm really proud of the Shriver report that put that on the map for the very first time because I kept seeing more and more women with Alzheimer's. I kept hearing from more and more women saying, I'm taking care of my mother. My mother has Alzheimer's. And when I would go to all the doctors and research places, they're like, no, 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 no. It's not true. And I'm like, I don't know. So that's once again, where I took my reporting and went and we spent two years kind of doing a massive poll working on this issue across the country. And lo and behold, Alzheimer's did disproportionately impact women and nobody knew why that was. And nobody was focused on funding the research into women's brains and making women a part of the narrative. And so I thought, well, there's a wide open space and I'm going to hammer it through so that every woman understands that this is part of her health trajectory and that there are certain things she can do to change that outcome. And I want to fund research into understanding what's happening in women's lives when they're 45, 50, 55, and 60. So it has been a space that has been extraordinary for me because it has brought kind of my women's empowerment work, my women's health work, my Alzheimer's work, all of these things into one place. And so if you had told me when I was uh, 40 or something that I'd be in the Alzheimer's space and the brain research space, and I would have been like, what? I'm not interested in that. And lo and behold, here I am working with the Cleveland Clinic as an advisor on women's health mapping out a trajectory for women's Alzheimer's prevention. And I'm knee deep in it. I know more doctors than I have friends, you know, so I'm in a space (laughs) that I never anticipated being in because I allowed my curiosity to lead me. I didn't have a career trajectory planned out, but I had a curiosity and I tried to follow the story or where I thought the story was going. 
what is giving you hope right now in your work against Alzheimer's to, to combat it? All the people involved in it, there are so many amazing neuroscientists in this space. There's a lot of very wealthy people now funding in this space, a lot of tech people who are interested. There's a whole resurgence of people who are interested in the longevity argument. And the biggest uh, roadblock to kind of a full and long and healthy life is a neurological disease. So people are trying to understand the brain in ways they never were before. They can look at the brain in ways they never could before. So I think also the advancement of kind of including lifestyle into brain health. That's why MOSH is such an exciting venture for me because we're talking about brain well, health. Well, that's going to be my next yeah. question. So we're, can you can you give us the skim on MOSH? Uh, the skim on MOSH is like everywhere I went, I had done documentaries and books and all of these things on Alzheimer's. And people always ask me, do you have anything for me to eat? And I eat protein bars nonstop because they're in my bag. I'm moving around. And so many of them would give me a stomachache that make me feel bloated. And so my son said, you know, you're always talking about this ideal protein bar for the brain. Make it yourself. Bet on yourself. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in my 60s. I've done all this. I don't want to really try to become a entrepreneur in the protein bar space. You got to be kidding me. Everybody in it is 25 <laughs> and a guy, you know. And he's like, you know, then be quiet. If you're not going to do it, be quiet. And so I said, okay, I'll go do it. I'll just try it and see if I can do what I think people need and want. And it's been an unbelievable success. And so many people have come into this space who never had it before. It's called Mosh, the brain brand. And it says as a tagline, your mind is our mission. And I really want people to be able to live into their 60s or 70s and their 80s with their mind and their bodies intact. And the best way to do that is to pay attention to it at your age. What's the number one thing that you would have changed? Well, I would have learned to manage my stress differently. I would have uh, adopted being a me meditator much earlier than I did. I looked at my food intake as opposed to I always looked at it, what's going to make me thin as opposed to what's going to be yeah. healthy for my brain. I never heard anybody talk about that. It wasn't in my... Mm -hmm mind at all. And by the way, it wasn't anybody else's right. either. People are thinking, how do I stay cognitively sharp? How do I remember? Um, how can I be my best self as long as I possibly can? And that has a lot to do with how you live your life on a day-to-day -day basis. I love that advice. I want to go to a listener question from Allie. Allie would like to know, how did it feel to re-enter your career in journalism? And were there any shifts you had to adjust to? Oh, huge shifts. I mean, I left, um, you know, making a huge salary, being an anchor, really being, for lack of a better word, you know, a powerful presence at the network. And I had to start over. I had to go back to being a reporter, making a fraction of what I was making. I was no longer in the anchor chair. I was no longer given the plum assignments. I wasn't given the big interviews. And so I had to start over again. So certainly I had 20, 30 years under my belt. I knew what I was doing, but I had to look at it as I'm going to have to work my way back up again or back to a place um, that I don't even really know what that is, but I'm going to have to find my way again from scratch. Um, and my career at NBC today is what I make of it, actually. And I also look at my life different. I don't look at my life in terms of career. I look at my life in terms of 
what brings me joy, what brings me meaning. So my work at NBC is important, but my work at Mosh is important. My work at the Sunday paper is probably my great love, my great passion. Those spaces and places are probably even more important than my work at NBC. So um, I, I feel like I have it in perspective. Kind of, I've made a life for myself that works for me. I love that. And it's such a, a great way to close out. Last question for you is who else should we book on the show? There's so many extraordinary people out there. Um, I mean, you know, Shannon Watts, who runs Moms Demand Action, is a really inspiring person. Uh, Scarlett Lewis, uh, who runs Choose Love. I think there's so many incredible doctors in the Alzheimer's space. Lisa Moscone, I wrote the foreword to her book on the XX brain. Well, Maria, it is really such an honor to be able to talk to you um, and kind of hear your story from you. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday.